During the coronavirus crisis and lockdown, Rabbi Katz will be delivering an informal pre-Mincha study session on Zoom every day at 6.50 p.m. If you're interested in joining, please send an email to rabbidkatz at gmail.com indicating that you would like to be added to the Zoom meeting, and you'll then be sent the link to access the Zoom learning session. Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. Hi, it's, fr- it's uh, Tuesday morning. Okay. Uh, last day of Chalamari. Tonight is already Shishal Pesach. And I wanted to do one of the yard site talks because it's been a while since all the Yom Tum and everything getting in the way which is 100% normal and fine. And uh, so I asked Ari who uh, who the yard started this week, and then I forgot. There's one that I do every year in my show, last day of Pesach, when we do a, you know, in the Elah Sachag. Remember those in the old days before the coronavirus? <laughs> uh, in the last day. And uh, that's a famous Sephardi, uh, Rabbi Yehuda Brazanis. Um, and uh, I said, you know, I'm gonna instead of doing it in Shul, I'll do it over here, because uh, it's quite a story. Um, and most it, it tells you a lot. It gives you perspective on the history of Sefarim. Let me put it that way: literary constructions. Uh, before I proceed, I just want to say that today's uh, podcast is being sponsored from Muncie by uh, Rabbi Yona uh, uh, Stefanski in memory of his uh, brother. Uh, sorry about that and uh, uh, Rabbi Stefanski has, has sponsored us in the past as you know we're always looking for sponsors to make these things happen and uh, we're very appreciative now uh, without any further ado I said I was going to talk about it's a bunch of yard stations but the one that caught my eyes uh, Yehuda Rosanis. Uh bear with me now this is a Sephardi rabbi in Turkey in the 16 and 1700s. He actually lived 70 years, 1657 to 1727. I'm sorry, 70 years, right? So that's a long life, you know, relatively, especially in those days. And this is what you call Turkish gedolim. In other words, they're not Turkish, they're Sephardi. As I mentioned the other day, in connection with whoever I spoke about last time, these are real Sephardim, Torim, the real McCoy. Jews whose parents, grandparents, and so forth ran away from Spain. Actually, I'm wrong. I think in this case, Rosanis, I think one of them fled from the Inquisition. So I, maybe it's not Sephardim Torim. But anyway, there was a there were used to be something called the Ottoman Turkish Empire, which was gigantic. Uh, it was the whole Middle East plus one third of Europe. At the time I'm speaking about, when he was born in 1657, the Turkish Empire ruled Hungary. You understand? Uh, they're fighting with Poland. Uh, it was humongous, and they were on the other hand, they were all the way down to the, the to uh, Arabia and Iraq. So it was a big business under the Sultan of Turkey. This is where the majority of of Sfarnim ran away to. I mean, Jews from Spain. Uh, Rosanis is actually a name of a town in uh, in Catalonia and Aragon in Spain. So this is old Spanish stuff, and these are the world of Ladino. You know, the real Sephardim who brought their Spanish uh, culture with them, but also had an elite of Torah culture. What makes the immigration of the Sephardim from Spain and Portugal elsewhere, especially the Turkish Empire, so interesting from a historical perspective is that they were heavy hitters in terms of intellectuality. They brought a tremendous civilization with them. There have been a lot of different Jewish communities, as I've mentioned here, I'm sure, in the past. Uh, but they didn't amount to much in the cultural sense. You know, what do you ever hear about Greek Jewry? What do you ever hear about Bulgarian Jews? There were Jews there, you know. What do you ever hear about Jews from Libya? Not Sephardim, you know, local. What do you ever hear about Jews, you know, from this place and that place? Uh, you know, nothing. Uh, now, that's not a uh, personal insult. It's just a statement that not every group is culturally productive. They don't publish Sephardim and things like that. But the Jewish people didn't have a country for thousands of years. So all they have are the books. You, you get it? This is the portable fatherland. What you and I have together before the modern state of Israel uh, is, is just a common set of literature. 
So people who are literarily productive to keep the thing going, that makes it, you know, like like a, a, a certain leading community. And the other ones, lesser so. So the Sephardim, totally aside from other cultural factors, the Sephardim from Spain brought a tremendous legacy of, uh, of serious Torah scholarship with them. Torah scholarship with them. And other communities not. This is the reason why when the Sephardim arrived in the Middle East after 1492, they conducted a war for 100 years to take over the communities, and they succeeded. They Sephardiized everybody, whether the locals liked it or not, for the most part. And so, you know, places like Yerushalayim, Aleppo, Cairo, you know, Istanbul, and places like they weren't originally Sephardim, but they became Sephardiized. And so the Jews from there are either from Spain or culturally dominated Judaically by Spanish uh, ideas and, and, and literature and customs. And the way it worked in the Turkish Empire, although it's a long, I'm oversimplifying, is that um, you had a large uh, uh, empire and you had Jewish populations scattered all over the place, about 200,000 altogether over a huge area. That's what they figure. And um, the Turks were uh, very tough and, and militaristic. They let the Jews be there because the Jews are no threat, although they had complete contempt for the Jews as a bunch of wimps, which from the warrior Turkish point of view was true. The Sephardim didn't come and fight because they can't, so they're, they're, they're not the fighting type. And the government had a complex series of relationships with the Jewish community. I would simply say that uh, most of the sultans had Jewish doctors, and that was the Jewish entree into the court, especially after the 1500s. Things were not that great for the Jews in Turkey, but every big shot... Uh, had a, a Jewish doctor too, which is just interesting. The doctors they had usually were Jews who received medical training in Europe. So the Turks are Muslims, but they realize that the medicine is better over by the Christians, the medical schools, and they would always import a doctor or two to take care of the Sultan. These Jewish doctors um, tried their best, usually, to make things better for the other Jews, you know, stop the Gezeras and that sort of thing. But it's a world of tremendous intrigue. And you never know how it works with the Turks. I remember there was one doctor in the 1600s, and he was very effective in, in, in curing the sultan and the wives. And the sultan's mother got very ticked off that a non-Muslim has such a position in the court. And she basically said, you have to convert or we'll kill you. And he said, then kill me. He said, well, then that didn't work. So she says, either you convert to Islam or we kill all the Jews in the city, in Istanbul. Tens of thousands. So he converted. I'm just telling you, that's the way, you know, life was lived in those days. And the vast majority of Jews lived hand to mouth, you know, not well uh, financially. But there's always a 1%, a 2%, a 3% at the top that does well. And I'm saying it's all for a reason. And usually, the way that worked in Turkey is you could be a successful merchant. That's one possibility. You just happen to be good in business, you know, in, in buying and selling, import and export. You have a good network out there. Uh, you know, you know how to find bargains. That That is one type. That's not everybody. That's a small group. There was always that economic elite that they were good in business. And then there's the other way of making money, which is government contracts. Like I said before, very few businesses have really taken off in history, to my knowledge, without government contracts. So with government contract, you got a huge number on your hand, right? And so it did develop in the 1600s and 1700s that a lot of high Turkish officials basically started to have money and they need somebody to be what we would call today money manager, financial advisor, uh, investment advisor, that sort of business. And there's a certain type of Jew that got into that line. You get it? A certain type of Jew that got into that line. And, uh, and it is a fact that, you know, these, these, these became the economic elite. And these are the guys where the, the, I'll use American terms, the Secretary of the Treasury, the Secretary of Defense, Secretary of State, each one would have a Jew or two, you know, sort of like, say, uh, helping them with the money. And, of course, there's a lot of uh, corruption involved over there. But that's how life is living in the Turkish Empire. Everything's on bribery. And uh, the government officials, you know, try to squirrel away money. It happens in America well as well. Uh, not in my state. Maryland is renowned for being extremely honest. Baltimore particularly. But, uh, you know, the other states, I've heard that this happens. And... <laughs> Um, that's that, this. This was an elite. Now that means there are certain families that. Let me put it this way: If I got to the position that I was the financial advisor for the minister of the treasury, 
I would do my best to have my son, my son-in-law, or somebody like that succeed me afterwards. Right? That's only that's the human nature. And so certain families, Sephardic, Spanish background, uh, from families, attained an elite status, and, uh, you know, they, they had a lot of money, and they would, you know, invest themselves in banking and all these kind of things. And this is the top of the cream. You know, this is the one the one percent at the top that does well, whereas the other ninety some percent did not do well. That's how Jewish life was lived once upon a time. So the question then becomes like this how firm are this elite? How firm is this elite? Now what's interesting is that in Turkey, in Istanbul, the firm elite was fairly firm because Turkey was not like Spain, where you had a secular society to some degree and people could get involved in, uh, shall I say, you know, secular interests, philosophy, uh, European culture. I'm talking about back in the, before 1492, you had such types, you know, where power corrupts. There's no question power corrupts and money corrupts, that's just the human nature. But in the case of Turkey, um, the, the, the Gaisha culture was very from Muslim, so therefore the Jewish culture was like from Jewish. Now, I shouldn't generalize, because it's notorious among the Sephardim, and they have these rich guys, they're real momsers, and uh, they would try to lord it over the, the rabbis and beat them up. Uh, who was it? The Marin Lave back in the 1500s in Salonika. I think it was him. You know, he posking against a guy, and they had, and the guy was so angry, rich guy, they murdered the, the son. They murdered the son of Marin Lave, and somebody else punched him or beat him up. And they, they, there's a whole story in Lithuania that hundreds of years later, the Gilgul showed up. It's one of those uh, famous tales of yesteryear. And you have other cases also in which the rich and powerful guy, the Gvir, would really, you know, walk all over the Chacham. No question about that. But you also had the other type in which a person would be wealthy and would use it to support Torah institutions. I suspect usually, in my opinion, usually that comes from the fact that some rabbi's son got rich. You understand? In other words, if you come from a Rosh Hashiva family, a rabbi family, so you may become rich and spoiled, but you still, by, by family background, you have some uh, understanding of the chashivas, of the culture, of the Torah, all the rest of it. And you may have relatives that are in learning, and that will incline you to be more iliamazonary in terms of supporting what we in it today would call yeshivas and Torah institutions and literature and things like that. So it's from this group that was Yehuda Rosanis, because, uh, like I said before, there was like a dozen or two dozen of these families, and one of them is the Rosanis family, and I would say that they would combine Torah Gadul and Makam Echad. Notice they had contacts with the government, they were financial agents and so on and so forth, but from their ranks were also scholars and Tamir Chachamim. Now here we're talking about the late 1600s already, and early 1700s. So at this time, the Turkish Empire was going through stress and strain. The Turks were conquerors, that's what they did. They just conquered, conquered, conquered until they ran up against more powerful countervailing force. Uh, by the 1600s, by the late 1600s, the Turkish Empire started to shrink very slowly. Uh, they themselves, in other words, in their Muslim culture, like we see today, like the ISIS or something like that, is a permanent war, right? Interrupted by truces. You're trying to conquer the world and convert to Islam. This is who the Turks were. Uh, you know, from their perspective, they're doing the right thing. And... Uh, you know, as I said before, you conquer, conquer until you can't anymore. And so the result is that um, they expanded and expanded. And they didn't see, like, it's a successful reign to have peace. You know what I mean? They always think, like, you have a war here, a war there, conquer a little here, conquer a little there. This turned out to be a very fatal in the long term for the Turkish Empire because, you know, they ran out of money. Wars are extremely expensive. And uh, you bleed yourself dry, so to speak. But that's who they were. Now, the reason I'm mentioning is because the uh, uh, Turks got involved in trying to take over Central Europe, Vienna, the famous siege of Vienna in the 1680s. They already tried in the 1660s to break in, and without giving you all the European history, they were repulsed. And this, um, what shall I say, supercharged the Christians, and they went on a counteroffensive, and in a series of campaigns, the Christians started to reconquer. And they, uh, make a long story short, they took back Hungary, most of it, in the 1600s, and the rest of it in the early 1700s. The Russians started to attack. The Persians on the other side hated the Turks, and they started to attack. And so the Ottoman Empire was under a stress and strain. 
This is this period. So there's a lot of wars. Sometimes the Turks won. They're very tough soldiers, very tough. And sometimes they lost. There was that period. Now, the reason I'm mentioning it because uh, if you got a lot of wars going on, so wars can be good for business from a certain perspective. I don't know if wars are good for the economy, but wars are definitely good for business of a certain type. What kind of business is a war good for? If you supply the army, <laughs> right? If it's a war on, then first of all, if you're in the, in the weapons business, you're making money because they're buying all your guns, your cannon, and that sort of thing. In addition to that, an army needs shoes, an army needs food, an army needs clothes, and so forth and so on. And so um, it's a government contract. You understand what I'm saying? But in order to do that, you have to be able to have the uh, organizational ability to put together, you know, large amounts. In a pre-industrial age, when there are no factories, you have to be able to supply an army. Think about what I'm about to say. You have to supply an army of, let's say, 50, 100,000 men. The Turks put together huge armies. 100,000 men, more than 150,000 men. That's gigantic by the standards of the old days. In fact, it's, uh, military historians have marveled at this because the Europeans couldn't do it. So just imagine, for example, if you have an army and you're going on a campaign and you make 100,000, think about what I'm about to tell you. An army of 100,000 um, uh, you know, men. Uh, that's 300,000 meals a day times seven is a week. So that's, uh, you know... <laughs> You're, you're talking a quarter million meals a week. You hear what I said? No, it's more than that, right? It's 100,000 a day. It's, what am I, crazy? Uh, 300,000 a day. It says two, two and a half million meals a week. How do, how do you do that? In the, even today, that's a challenge. How do you do that in the 1600s? How do you do it in the 1700s? You hear what I'm saying? I'm just trying to give you a, a, a basic idea. That's before we even start fighting. And you're marching... Then in addition to that, how do you have meals, two, two and some million meals for horses? Because you need the horses, okay? And in the, in the Ottoman army, they even had camels. And uh, it's just an interesting story, you know, logistically speaking, besides the weapons, all the rest of it. So in order to make this happen, you had to have a certain types of business people who have networks where they can say like this, I have a cousin Chaim here, another cousin Shlomo here, and he's got a relative over there, and they can... Uh, uh, buy up all the wheat in this province and all the food in that province and uh, the other one, Shmiel, can uh, transport it because he's got a shipping business and so on and so forth. So different ethnic groups used to compete to get into this act. The, in the Ottoman Empire would be the Greeks, the Armenians, and the Jews are one of them. And in the time I'm talking about, the late 1600s, so some Jewish firms were successful in this, including the family I'm talking about, Rosanis, that they were supplying the Turkish army in, uh, in, in, in uh, battles, which is just remarkable. Uh, I'm oversimplifying. There's a long story about the Janissaries and their uniforms and the Jews of Salonika who had a long-term uh, imperial order to supply the soldiers with uniforms. Oh, I'll, I'll leave that out. Now, um, just by way of general background. So consequently, uh, so, so these families, you know, were, were able to make a lot of money. Uh, now, some of them were uh, scholarly. But on the other hand, to be perfectly honest, the person who wants to sit and learn doesn't go together so well with being a successful business person if you're talking about the type of enterprises that I just described because they need 24-7 uh, nursing. You've got to be holding by the Indian to raise the, 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 the weapons and the uh, uh, uniforms and the food and the transport and all the rest of it and the shipping. Uh, you have no time to sit for six hours a day and learning, let alone 12. So, uh, in this case, the Rosanna's family, which had been long in Turkey, got in with the government. They're supplying the government. And uh, the father was already a, uh, um, I would say, a well-to-do guy. And he knew how to learn as well. And uh, the father's brother was, uh, was a mamash, a Talmud Chacham. Uh, and that's what happens in these families. Uh, the one who's really, really, really for learning, the other relatives will say, this, you get out of the way, you sit and learn, we'll pay you and we'll take over the business. That's what happened with our hero today, because uh, the Rosanna's family uh, were supplying the Turkish army. One of them, the one we're talking about, Yehuda, so uh, he's supplying the army, but on the other hand, he's too much into learning. And uh, there's a famous story, I don't know if it's true or not, but it's a very, very well-known story, that he accompanied the Turkish army as it marched forth, and he stopped, I think, in Adrianople, I believe it was, or some 
some town, and uh, he was wearing, because he's a military commissary, a Turkish military uniform with a sword in the whole business, even though he's mainly a learner, uh, because the person we're talking about, Yehuda, he was naturally, he took to learning like a fish to water, and uh, his Rebbe was a Talmud of the Maharit, so you know what I mean, he came from, his access to learning was on an elite level, uh, because as Farnham had their scholar elite going back to Yosef Karo and people like that, and these are students of students of Yosef Karo, and, uh, you know, let's put it this way, I don't have time to go into this in great detail, but we're talking about the top learners, and uh, the famous story is that he came, he's accompanying the army in the military uniform, and he wanted Dab Mincha, and he ran into the synagogue, the local synagogue, a Turkish officer does not, he looked like a Turkish officer, because he had the uniform, with the sword and all the rest of it, and he came into Dab Mincha, and they were all scared, because, you know, a guy walks in, especially in Turkey, maybe he's going to cause trouble, and the Jews have to be super wimpy in the Turkish Empire. That's that's their cultural stance. And then he went and Davin Mincha. And after he Davin Mincha, you know, he sat down for a minute to look at a safer, uh, which didn't make any sense to him because the guy looked like a Turkish officer. And uh, they had a conversation and learning, and somebody has a kash on the Rambam. And this uh, soldier, you know, he, he said, here's a terrorist, which super freaked him out. And the way this, it's got to be legendary, but the story is, that they said, Isaifa lo safra, Isaifa lo safra. That's what we don't understand. Like the Gemara says, if he got a sword, then how do you have a safer? And the other way around. And he answered, Ha safer, va saif, you know, yard de kruchim in Hashemayim. That, you know, it says, these are all Talmudic expressions. The sword and the, uh, and the book came down from heaven, which means it's possible to have the two together. But the incongruity of this is the point of the story. Now, this Yehuda I'm talking about, uh, he was 99% for learning. And so even though he's a member of the family business, but it wasn't before too long that the brothers said like this, you go for learning. You know what I mean? Now, the pietistic way it's written in the books is, all oh, the brothers were very, uh, you know, pious, and they wanted to support him, and all the rest of it. That could be. It's possible. But Levi Umerly, I think what happened, and you have these cases repeatedly in Jewish history, for example, the Ben Ishchai, is the exact same thing, and that is, you know, there are three partners in the business. One of them is always, during a, during a business meeting, he's always looking in a safer. And the other side like this, you know, this is not the life suited for you. Uh, you're a Garrett scholar. You really are. Uh, so get out of the way. We'll run the business and, uh, you know, and we'll support you. And it's actually better for them. They don't have to put up with this. That's what I think happens in these cases. So uh, as a result, you have somebody that I'm describing who, for the rest of his life, he lived to be 70, and he was in Turkey, and from a young age, he had tutors in learning, and Rebbeim that were, you know, Chasho, Tamini, Chacham, Sephardi style. And uh, he was able to, have, to devote the rest of his life to just sitting and learning. Uh, in which case, since he lived in Istanbul, you're dealing with somebody who is a millionaire, right, by the family uh, business. right? Or let's put it this way, he has access to the millions. So money's not a problem for him. That's pretty good, <laughs> Right? And as a matter of fact, he was about Sadaka and so forth, because he could be. So this is not the typical Turkish rabbi I'm describing over here. Because usually they'd be poor people with a small shul somewhere, you know, eking out a living the way most people do. Here's somebody who can live in the capital city in Istanbul. I'm sure he lived in a very nice house. I'm sure uh, he eventually became the Av Bezin or something in Istanbul. Why not? He might have even been the, uh, the Chacham Bashi, which is the government-appointed chief rabbi, because a guy like this can speak Turkish, uh, because he had to do, he was raised in a family of businessmen, where he had to learn Turkish in order to do the army contracts. And uh, so he became a, let's put it this way, in this sense, life was good to him, as far as we know. And uh, he's supposed to have had a saintly character, um, and, uh, and therefore he was able to do what he wanted to do, sit and learn, and he had a yeshiva, because a guy like this, has the money to, uh, to run a yeshiva. He doesn't need the fundraisers, right? And I'm sure he had his own synagogue. And, he, you know, things were good. And then he died when he was 70 years old. Now, in and of itself, that would simply be a story of a guy that, quote-unquote, got lucky. Right? He got lucky. He happened to be good in learning. He liked learning. The finances of his life worked out in such a way that he's able to devote himself to learning. He did all the things he'd be. He was an Av Bezden, and he was a Rosh Yeshiva, 
and you know he sat and learned all day long, and uh, and he was very good in it. And um, when I say good in learning, these are the Sephardim in the 16 and early 1700s, in which they're among the biggest lamdanim in the world. People have the wrong idea. What I mean is, uh, lamdus pilpul, everything that goes along with that, is flourishing in the top one percent of the Turkish rabbinate, of the Sephardic rabbinate. They're carrying on the legacies, you know, what they call Iyun, which is the Sephardi version of the Pilpul, and it's very, very lumdish, okay, super lumdish. And uh, these are the books that end up in the literature of yeshivas. Now, um, and then he died, okay, then he died. So, uh, he's a nice guy, a saintly person, uh, he did everything right, and then he died, he was 70. Now, uh, uh, he had a big library, as you can imagine. The guy I'm describing would have a big library, because he could afford it. And uh, and he and, and he's the type of person that every safer he buys, he reads. And not only that, because he was such a big lamdan, every safer he buys, he reads. He makes uh, notes, as scholars used to do on the margins of the pages. So you have lamdish notes of a Gansal library, uh, you know, uh, obviously Shas of Babu Yushalmi, Rambam Tour, Shulchan Aruch, all those sorts of things, you know, the Shach, the Ta, all the books that come out. And uh, I'll tell you again, you know, he can afford it. And he left the Velt of these notes. He himself didn't publish anything. Some people are like that. There's different personalities in Jewish history. Uh, for one reason or another, they didn't publish. Some said he didn't want to be misquoted. That's one version of the story. The Chidah said that he was a big onov. That's another version of the story. Whatever the case is, uh, he left all these notes. And they probably would be lost by today, or else they would end up in Sotheby's, you know, uh, if you're interested in an old book from Turkey, you know, from the 16, 1700s with notes on the side, and maybe some scholar today, Mokhan Yerushalayim, if he's interested in publishing the notes and scattered all over the place, which must have been like chicken scratch, uh, you know, in, in, in one of these, uh, you know, be obscure, uh, like I say, you know, safer, machan Yerushalayim type thing that comes out now, which is of interest to, uh, you know, a, f- a handful of scholars. And, and, and that'd be the end of the story. If that were it, I wouldn't be talking about him today. Here comes the interesting part. He, the guy I'm talking about, therefore, had a yeshiva, and a based in his, and, and, and all that sort of thing because he could, and uh, he was at, you know at the top of the pile, in in Istanbul in Turkey. Now, um, he had students. Uh, one of his students was this guy from Yerushalayim who was a big Talmud Chacham who had learned by him and was a dying in his basin, Yaakov Kuli. That you knew later on, you um, perhaps you've heard this name because of the Mayim Lois. He started the Mayim Lois. So Yaakov Kuli. So he was a big Talmud Chacham, and he became very attached to the Rebbe. And when the Rebbe died at the age of 70, when I say the Rebbe, so he undertook, I, I'll t- I'm going to tell you what I think, because that's all I ever do in the podcast. I'm going to tell you what I think. There's one of two possibilities. Either he saw Veltidi's farm, and he was overwhelmed by the majesty of the personality of his Rebbe, which probably was very impressive. And, uh, and he wanted to make it that his legacy should survive. So you shouldn't just say, I learned by an important Turkish rabbi in Istanbul. Who? Yehuda Rosanas. Who? You know, he wanted that uh, uh, his rabbi should receive the due fame to which his scholarship and piety uh, deserved. That's one possibility. Here's the other possibility, which I think, I just leave beyond really, and that is that the guy was a very big Tamachacham, his wife was also a cousin of his, as used to happen in those days. So it's all a family affair. As I said, he left rich brothers and nephews and that sort of thing. They were probably very proud of his great Torah scholarship. Nothing wrong with that. And they wanted uh, um, him to have the fame that, that, that he and the family deserved. Again, there's nothing wrong with that. That's a, that's a, a, a worthwhile ambition. And they, pay, this is my opinion, and they paid this Yaakov Kuli to say, you know, take all of his notes and put it together in a book, or something like that, uh, so that the uh, name of Yehuda Rizanis will be uh, uh, given its due, its due uh, glory. Now, he undertook to do this. Whatever the reason is, Yaakov Kuli put in years, 
like three, four years into doing just that. And what he did was he looked, he read all the chicken scratch here and there uh, from 100 books, 500 books. I don't know how many, you know, many, many sperm. And it's all full of lumdus. You understand? He would write these lumdus uh, notes on the side. And in addition to that, he had like a machberis or something like that in which he would write some of his own Torah stuff, as you find scholars do. And uh, it was all totally disorganized, uh, as, as people write for their own personal notes. And uh, out of all of it, he undertook to, to, to turn it into a safer. So here you have, and, and what he did was, he said, I want to figure out a principal organization and take these scattered notes and put them in some kind of organized fashion to edit them, which means to cut and paste, to add, to take things out, and, you know, rearrange items. So just off the top, man, if I'm sitting here, let's say he was interested in uh, Adam's Omen. I don't know, you know. So he probably had some uh, notes over here, you know, in, in uh, what do you call it, in Sanhedrin, some notes in, um, uh, what do you call it, Makas, and some notes on the side of the Rambam, and some notes on the side of his tour, and, you know, and, and a Machberis or two are here, and they're all scattered all over the place. Because in one year, Yehuda Rezanus learned it this way, and another year he gave a share that way, and another year he heard a Shiloh that was no gay to that. You know, that it's a completely disorganized. And so the editor, in an act of literary creation, put it all together. He said, now this is what he had to say in the subject of Adam Zoneman. Now what he chose to do uh, was put it as uh, on the Rambam. Get it? He said, since the Rambam goes through Kola Torah Kula, so I'll organize the notes in the form of where they would be found in the Rambam. So where the Rambam talks about Adam Zoneman, for example, to use the example I gave, uh, and the Rambam talks about Adam Zoneman, so that's where I'll put his notes, what he had seen in Zoman from 20 different places. You get it? And so, is this the original, or is this the edited? It's the edited. It's from the original, of course, but this is what I'm trying to say. In the history of Sfarm, sometimes the editor is the is, is the Boreolum for this, yeah? Or let's put it this way. He's not the Bore, he's the Yotzer. He's not Yesh Mi'ayin, but Yesh Mi'ayin. You hope it's not Yesh Mi'ayin. It's Yesh Mi'ayin. So he's taking this stuff but he's giving it a completely different look. So basically, I'm baking a cake. I have the uh, ingredients, but the ingredients by themselves don't look like the cake at the end. On the other hand, without the ingredients, I wouldn't have a cake. And here's what he did. So he put the whole thing throughout the whole Rambam from beginning to end because he had stuff on every part of Torah, uh, as you would imagine. He died at 70. And he gave it the title, uh, since it's called the the, you know, the, the, the Ramam's book is called Mishnah Torah. See, so I'm going to call this, you know, the editor who spent three, four years more, maybe, on this, uh, a long time. The editor, he's like this, I'm going to give these notes that I have arranged and cut and pasted, and sometimes he leaves things out, whatever. Uh, I'm going to call it Mishnah Lamelech. So the person I'm talking about today is the Mishnah Lamelech on the Rambam. But it's not what you think. The Mishnah Lamelech didn't write a safe on the Rambam. The Rishnamach didn't write a safer. The Rishnamach had notes that he wrote on his on his on, on his books. The editor, Yaakov Kuli, turned it into Mishnah which of course became one of the most famous and important commentaries on the Rambam. And um and and when it was published, it didn't take long for it to spread throughout the whole Jewish world and blew everybody away, which it does until today. Because the Mishnah is the super lumbish appears on the Rambam, as I think everybody knows. And uh it became part of the phenomenon of the 18th century in which people write these big lambdisha things and they organize it according to the Rambam, even though it's not on the Rambam per se. I mentioned the other day the Shah HaMelech, as for example, the Merkevitz HaMishnah. For some reason, these guys were all in the 1700s. So this became a fashion in the 1700s. And as we know, it reached its peak in the 18 and early 1900s where Chaim Briscoe, Allah Rambam, and many others uh, they write Allah Rambam. But they're not really writing on the Rambam. They're not interested in being a commentary on the Rambam per se, it's using the Rambam as as a as a uh, basis of organization of uh, Torah literature because the Rambam covers everything. Uh, so you know you're, you 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 the, the the way of of um, you know approaching the subject is from what you start with the, what the Rambam says, but you go very far beyond that. So the Mishnah Melch, as you know, has become as is humongous, but it's a it's a completely artificial creation. You see, when you're reading Mishnah Melch, you're, you're you're reading the way the editor took all these scattered notes, 
And uh, it's very interesting. The Chidah writes about this in his uh, Shema Gedolim. And I always found this very interesting. And the Chidah was in uh, Turkey not long after he died. Uh, the, you know, no, not long after what I just told you happened. So he is always talking about the Zikne Talmudic Achamim, the Kushta, you know, in Constantinople, who will say, you know, you notice this Shver Mishnah Melchas because the editor screwed up. You know, that's what they say. Or you notice this thing is out of place because the editor had a bad day and he put the wrong thing in the Mishnah Melch. Meaning it's not, it, it, you can't necessarily ask us, let me put it this way, you can't ask a steer in the Mishnah Melch, get it? Because the Mishnah Melch didn't say it, right? It's the editor who put it. You can maybe ask a steer in it why the editor put it one way or the other, but that's a completely different type of question. You understand? To make matters more complicated, modern scholars uh, who care about this stuff know that uh, on the margins of the pages, uh, he also included a lot of material, the Rebuta Rosanus included a lot of material from his Shver, from his father-in-law. Because he married, like I say, a cousin. So I think it was an uncle, was the father-in-law. And the father was a very big Tamachachim in his own, Avram Rosanus. These are names that I know most of us are not familiar with because you've got to be an expert in Sephardic, Turkish, Torah scholarship, but these are biggies. You know, these are guys from the time of the Shach and the Taz and, you know, people like that. And uh, they were very big Talmud Chachamim, you know. Uh, and he learned from the Mabit and, and, and so forth. And uh, there's nothing wrong with this. So the son-in-law must have had a great time with his father-in-law in Turkey. And remember, money's not a problem for these people. And so they could sit and talk and learning. And, uh, you know, like I said, if you have an argument of Adam Zoman or Trey Vitre, or Migu, or Rove, or something like that, or Chametz, Bali Rabbi says, you know, so he says a kasha, he says a terrace, he says a kasha on the terrace, he says a terrace on the kasha, and he included a lot of his material in the uh, in the notes uh, on the side. And the editor seems to have missed it all together. So I'm just saying from a strictly historical perspective, when you read the Mishnah Melch, it's not 100% all from the Mishnah Melch. Some of it is from the father-in-law. So sometimes you're asking Akasha because he says one thing over here and the other one says something over there. One could be from A and the other one could be from B. One could be from the father-in-law the other one could be from the son-in-law. So the Mishnah Melch itself is a historical uh, uh, creation. Uh, and that's just interesting because it goes to show you several things. I'm describing a phenomenon in history in which sometimes somebody could be a big scholar, big rabbi, but uh, if not, you know, uh, no one would ever know about it unless somebody else came along and rescued him from oblivion by publishing his stuff. Uh, I remember, you, you know, it was like this, the Minchas He was a rabbi in, in a town in uh, Tarnopol, in, you know, in, in Galicia, and uh, he used to learn with these guys in town. He wasn't a dynamic rabbi at all, but he was a good learner, obviously. And the students, if I drained him a cup, over and over again, publish this thing, publish this thing, publish this thing, and I think they went ahead, or they pushed him to do it, and he put out the Mishnah the which took off the, which, which flew off the charts, as we know. So you would never know that this guy existed if not for the fact that the students pushed him against his nature to publish the stuff that he was doing. Uh, so the Mishnah is a perfect example of this. I would say he's the perfect example, because the Mishnah as you know, is gigantic, and the big Lam done him, in the last 200 years, uh, you know, really put a lot of time in Mishnah There used to be a certain type of big rabbi in, in uh, Poland and Lithuania. They would spend Fridays, Friday mornings, uh, just reading Mishnah because it's all pure alumnus, you know. And so uh, I remember reading about people like that. They spent all morning on Friday. Uh, you know, some people prepare for Shabbos by chopping wood and going shopping, and some prepare for Shabbos, you know, the Shabbos Malkasa with the Mishnah Malch. Um, you know, reach that, that, that level, as I think we all know, because when has there ever been a yeshiva without the Mishnah Malch? You know, it's kasha, it's terrors, this, that, and the other. And um, um, so it's just interesting in this regard that, the, you know, his fame was a result of what happened after his death, and it's entirely due to the editor. And, uh, and, we'll, and we don't have the originals, uh, so we don't know how the editor exactly did it. At least to my knowledge, we don't have the originals. I saw once there is a uh, article in the in the, the Carlin Stolen thing. What's it called? COVID base Avram Aaron or something like that, 
where a guy did a very scholarly article where he actually found a tour. You know, these Hasidic rabbis, like the Carlina Rebbe, they have amazing libraries of original editions and rare manuscripts and stuff like that. And he has something from an old tour, you know, Baltorium, and had the notes from the Mishlamachon or something like that. So that's a case where you can see the originals, but usually not. What we have is the literary production today. Uh, and so you have a, an artificial creation. On the other hand, the guy was a good baker. He made a good cake. You see? Now, uh, that's why I say the, the story is very interesting. When you see a safer, one of the things you have to ask yourself, if you're interested in the historical provenances, who wrote it in the sense that I'm talking about today? Did the author write it? Was it published in his lifetime? Was it published after his lifetime? Which often it is. If it's published after his lifetime, who is the editor? What decisions were made to cut and paste? What they leave in, what they leave out? Am I reading what the editor thinks? Or am I reading what the original author thinks? You know, that kind of business. So, for example, the first copy, the first edition, Note of Yehuda, was published by the author in his lifetime. The second was published posthumously. So what did they cut and what did they paste? You know, what did they leave out? You get it? Uh, this is, uh, you know, not at all uncommon. And, and, and the inquiring minds want to know if, if you care about this sort of thing. You know, if you care about what the author really think. So, Mishnah come outstanding example of this. Now, I'm not finished. In addition to what I just said, this is uh, Yaakov Kuli, this uh, editor. He must have been paid by the family, I'm sure. But anyway, whatever it is. Because how do you devote all this? What I'm talking about is Avodas Perich. This spent years working on this grand project. Nobody, I mean, even if he's the most devoted student in the world to his Rebbe, and I'm saying he was, let's say he was. Uh, and uh, call a kavod, you know. Uh, but how do you, how do you, this is something required 12 hours a day. You know, you had to eat, sleep, and, and, and breathe somebody else's work. And uh, like I say, even if you hold your Rebbe's the greatest things in Swiss cheese, you know, but uh, how do you make a living? You know, what do you, it has to be that this was how he made a living. It's got to be, and especially when you consider the family was rich. It had to be, that's, that's how he made a living. Uh, I'm not done. In addition to what I just said, Rebuta Rosanis used to give uh, speeches, drushes. It's a Friday style. I'm not talking about Shabbos Agarol. I'm talking about Shabbat. Regular Shabbos. Uh, different times. Uh, and his... Uh, now, I don't know what kind of a, a crowd he had. I mean, he had a synagogue of his own. And if you owned the synagogue, you could speak as long as you want, baby. You know, As long as you got a minion. And those guys can probably pay to have 10 people there every day. You know, there are shows like that. And so, I don't know if he's a good speaker or a bad speaker. But... I'm talking in terms of oratorical ability, but he gave a lot of drushes. The editor took all the material and he arranged the drushes. I don't know exactly how. That's a fascinating question. He arranged the 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 uh, the material that he found and the margins of papers and written uh, manuscripts and sides of books and all the rest of it into a a literary masterpiece, and it's the precious drachim, which is a uh, a very favorite, uh, a, a favorite sefer of mine. Uh, the precious drachim is, uh, the, the, <clears throat> but it's an edited uh, creation. It's the uh, outstanding example, I would say, of what we call the drush ha-halachti, uh, which means that there's a certain genre, and everybody knows that the precious drachim is the outstanding example. This is no secret I'm saying. It's uh, renowned that the precious drachim is the outstanding example of a certain type of drasha that was given once upon a time, which is lumbus in a agadato format. And what you end up doing is basically saying uh, that the reason uh, you know Moshe and Aaron uh, had an argument over whether they let the people go is because Moshe held like the Rambam and uh, the uh, Parah held like the Ravid, you know? Uh, Achashverish held like the Rajva, and, uh, you know, Esther held like, uh, you know, whatever, the, uh, you know, I mean, the, 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 the uh, Magad Mishnah, you know. I'm serious. I'm serious. In other words, you create an entire world of thought in which the biblical stories, the Talmudic stories, and many others are strung together in such a way that they reflect uh, the Talmudic um, uh, halachic even material. And so Avram Avin is going back and forth to Israel, uh, he said, like, oh, I forgot to make a Kenyan Chazaka, so I got to go but then what do you do according to the Lan said the Chazaka didn't work at that time, especially if, he was, if he had a den of a guy, 
So then he had to do another Kenyan, you know, th- that way of learning it. Uh, is this to be taken literally? There's always been a debate. I don't think so. It's, it, it's, it, it's by imposing these Talmudic and halachic categories on the biblical actors and on the Talmudic actors, you create a certain world and it was seen as a chashivas Torah. That's my understanding of it. And, uh, you know, if you say, as I said before, that Achav, you know, held like the Rajba, you're, you're offering a, a lens, which is one of Shivan Panam Torah. Uh, that's my point. You know, there, there's uh, infinite, and Shivan Panam Torah is just an expression. It means there are infinite Panam Torah because it's a divine thing. And so there are many, many ways of analyzing a story. Uh, there are many, many ways of analyzing an incident told in Tanakh or in the Gemara between Tanakh and Ryan. There's many ways of doing it. And um, so one way is a, is a Pashim Shah way. That's fine too. And another way is a Musr way. That's fine too. Another way is called the Drush HaHalachti. That you uh, argue that the story can be un- refracted through the lens of Pilpalistic analysis. Talmudic and Pilpalistic analysis. Uh, now, uh, this is something that appeals to a few because you have to be a certain type of lambda to appreciate this kind of business. But if you do, it's great. And everybody knows that the Prussians draw, and, and in the 1600s and the 1700s, the Pilpalistic system of Yeshiva was so popular, it spilled over from Lambdas and Halacha into Agadatah. And this is the, the, this is the examples of it. And, uh, you know, it was like this, Rionis and Abishitz, for example, and so forth. You read his thing with Miguel Sester, you know, Esther held that the, uh, the first day of, Chana, uh, of Pesach was, I don't know, you know, something could be Doch Esther, Doch Elosasai, but Mordechai didn't, you know, that, that, that whole way of, of, of learning. And uh, it, it was wildly popular in its day. I don't think it's so popular now, but maybe I'm wrong. And the reason I say maybe I'm wrong is, I mean, I, I, I really don't think so, but I always liked it. And many years ago, I got a copy in Rashi script, which is hard to read, but I, I found it interesting. And, uh, then later on, they put it out with a block print, which was much, much better, with some footnotes. And uh, this is about 30 years ago, whatever. And then about 10, 15 years ago, I was in a bookstore, and I was shocked out of my pants. They came out, Prashish Drach Menukad. You can get it, you know? Who the heck would put all this stuff out with no kudos? I just can't. I'm flabbergasted even today. Uh, and then it's online. In other words, I think... The Prussian Drachim is, is literally on Wikitext or something like that. So I must be wrong. A lot of people must know about it, I suppose. Maybe in Israel. Uh, and here you end up with the situation. This is the kind of business which, which uh, you know, you analyze since it's Pesach. What is the reason? That's where you get it. You know, what's the reason the Jews got out early? So some say it's Rubai HaOchlusia. The other one says it's Kosher Shibud. One says it's the Nashim uh, Tikkunios. And then you have A ask a B and B ask a Kashan B. How do you locate this uh, Medrash over here? It's obviously following the Shita of Reba Hochlusia. What about this one over here? It's obviously following the opinion of Rabbi Kiva that it's Nashim Tikkunios. And you ask and the answer back and forth Rabbi Kiva versus the other one. And, uh, you know, how do you locate this? The most famous of the precious Drachims, if anybody's ever heard of the Sefer, then what you heard of is this. He has a very famous piece in which he raises the question, what was the status of the Avos prior to Matan Torah? In other words, from a halachic perspective, were Avram and Yitzhak and Yaakov, were they Yehudim or not? In other words, were they Jews with all the halachas of Jews, or were they Goyim? Right? So in other words, when Avram made a Kenyan, Avram Avinu, when he made a Kenyan, did he make the type of Kenyan that would work for a Jew? Or, or did he make the type of Kenyan work for a guy because he wasn't Jewish yet? You, you follow those kind of business, you know. When Yaakov married the two sisters, so could he do this because he wasn't Jewish? Therefore, that issue didn't apply? Or, or no, there are other places that indicate that he was Jewish, and then how could he marry the two sisters? You know, that, that whole business. And that became like his signature at Russia. But nothing is from him. It's all from the editor. That's my point. The Prussian Drachim is an edited collection taken from all these notes and uh, put together. And I think, uh, you know, if you look at the introduction of the Mishnah Melch and you look at the introduction of the uh, Prussian Drachim, the, 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 the book Prussian Drachim was created by the editor. And so uh, what you end up having over here is 
uh, you know, the, the, the editor explaining the principles on which he, he uh, you know, uh, based his, his way of constructing this work. And so uh, all I can tell you is that uh, I, like I said before, in my show, I usually, when I have a practice that uh, when we have the, um, what do you call it, the um, Neil Sachag, you know, the last day, I always do something because always this yard site, you know, always do something from the precious drachim because always cute. Balabatim, you have to explain it a lot. But if you explain it, people like it. In fact, I even had a Chabura the, a year ago or something like that for a while on Thursday nights where we did pieces from the precious drachim. Uh, he's got interesting things about Tishabov, whatever. It's, it's, it's about uh, 25 drushas, I think, or, or something along those lines. And, uh, you know, it's it's not for everybody. It's a matter of taste, as they put it together. But if you like it, it became the classic. And it's in a class by itself. Uh, recently, uh, some people are trying to, uh, what do you call it, uh, imitate it. I said there's a guy called Ghana de Pilpoli or something like that. I picked up in the bookstore. And uh, because it, it, let me let me say this. This whole genre of literature, which I find attractive, which is genre of literature, bespeaks a, a a mindset which is saturated in Talmudism. You get it? Then you see something aesthetic about defining the Book of Esther or the story of King David or Moshe Rabbeinu or anything like this. You find an aesthetic uh, pleasure in this sort of analysis. It doesn't li- literally have to be true. But uh, <laughs> you never know. But it'd be quite remarkable if the if Paro held like the rival. You know what I mean? But who knows? That's my point. The who knows is the uh, the, the, the mysterious uh, part of this in the sense of mysticism. Uh, anyway, so here I conclude by pointing out a uh, um, a certain type. In fact, probably the outstanding example of the type in which you have a famous person who is famous entirely as a result of what people who came after him did. Because if he didn't have the student to spend years and years to put this together in a masterful way, because I think everybody would agree today that the Mishnah Melch is a masterpiece. And I think everybody would agree that Parashat Drachim is a masterpiece. Uh, you know, they made the reputation of the author. Uh, if I would have started today, say, I'm talking about the Mishnah Melch, oh yeah, for sure. Right? That's why I didn't do it. The, um, the, the, the uh, results are, to, uh, you know, let me put it this way. You are in the hands sometimes of your editors especially the ones that come after you, because, uh, you know, the, it, it, what you leave behind is left for others to fashion. Sometimes they do a better job, sometimes they don't. In the case we're talking about today, most people would say that the editor did uh, a masterpiece job. Uh, even though, was, you know, like if you read the Chidah, there's a few things that things are going, you know, he put a few things out of place, but big deal, 99% of it, Ninety-eight percent of it is is uh, masterful, um, as they would say today, and so you have the Mishnah Melch as sort of like the arch example of this uh, genre, of this uh, phenomenon. Uh, all right, enough of that. So I hope everybody has something to think about as we get ready for the last days of Pesach. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.